Right. That's awesome, huh? Yes, it is. Are you guys awake? Hello. It's cloudy and rainy. I guess that means everybody's still sleeping or mourning from the Chiefs yesterday. Uh, well, like Drew mentioned in the video there, we're going to start a new series this morning. It's going to be in the book of Romans. So if you have a Bible and you want to open up to Romans chapter 1, uh, we're going to spend our time this morning in the first seven verses of Romans 1. And then over the course of the year, we're going to begin working our way through uh, the entire letter. Uh, as you get settled, uh, I want to share some words that should be familiar to all of us. They come from the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness." We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You might not have those words memorized. You might not just be able to recite them at any moment, but there's something that are familiar to all Americans. We understand that it's out of those words that we draw our foundation, that that's how America began to separate itself, or actually stated that it was separate, from England, that we were going to form a new country and we're moving forward in a new direction. There's a shared understanding and not just the importance, but also the meaning of those words. As a nation, we have this common idea of the basis of our identity, who we are, and what that means for us going forward. And at different times, different segments of the American population might differ on how to best pursue those ends or what the government should look like in order to secure those things. But the historical foundation and the future goal are shared understanding among American people. The way Paul starts Romans is by clarifying some shared understanding. In fact, Romans is the longest of all of Paul's letters. Romans 1, 1 to 7, the salutation or the greeting at the beginning of the letter is the longest introduction or greeting that Paul gives in any of his letters. And there's actually a lot that can be taken out of it. So that's what we want to do this morning. Where Paul starts is by not necessarily explicitly answering a question that's been asked, but instead laying a foundation of who are we? How did we become this way? And how does that frame what it means to go forward as Christians? The big takeaway this morning is that the foundation of our identity stands secure upon the foundation of the gospel. And Paul is going to fill that out with three identity markers and a handful, uh, four foundations of the gospel. And he just lays them out in his introduction and in introducing himself in his letter and they're very, very clear if you take the time to walk through it kind of slowly. So I'm going to read Romans 1, 1 to 7, and then we'll start working our way through the text. This is what it says. Paul, 
a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for his name's sake among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Three identity markers, four statements of truth about the gospel. And we're going to deal with these kind of in a uh, holistic sort of sense. And so I'm actually going to take the three identity markers and put them in order of importance rather than in order of how they came in the text. But the most important one, The foundation of all of it is stated in verse 7. To all who are in Rome, loved by God. The basis, the underlying foundation of who we are as Christians, of who these Roman believers are that Paul's writing to, of who Paul is, is found completely outside of us. It's not something about what we do. It's not something about our personality. Instead, it's rooted entirely in God. The foundation of that identity rests in God's love for us. There's nothing more powerful or forceful in terms of indicating the worth and value and dignity of every single human life on the face of planet Earth than the fact that God loves you. You are loved by God. Hear that again. You are loved by God. The God who spoke light into darkness, the God who upholds the universe by the power of his word, the God who sustains life, the God who sent his son to die on the cross to redeem humanity from sin, you are loved by that God. And there, at its very base, is the foundation of your identity, who you are. You are loved by God. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, that means you understand the depth of God's love for you. That despite being broken and sinful, he loved you enough to send his son into the world to die on the cross for you. Placing your faith in Jesus Christ means that you understand what is being said when John, in the Gospel of John says, For God loved the world in this way, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so Paul begins his letter to the, to the Christians in Rome by stating that. This is shared understanding. You're loved by God. It's the crucial underpinning in the description of who a Christian is. And that's common. It should be shared knowledge. Not only that God loves every single person who's placed their faith in him, but also that he has a love for every single person that's ever been born. That's ever been created. God loves you. You are loved. The second one, and he actually mentions it three times, is that you are called. In three different places, Paul mentions calling. In verse 1, he states that he's been called as an apostle. In verse 6, he states that the Roman Christians are called as saints. And in verse 5, he reminds us that all of that calling is from Jesus Christ. It's by Jesus Christ. See, not only does God love you, But if you've placed your faith in him, then he has called you. He's called you into faith. There was a moment in your life, if you've 
placed faith in Jesus Christ, where the Holy Spirit stirred inside of you in such a way that you understood the reality of sin and brokenness and your need for a Savior, and you recognized that Jesus Christ was the only sufficient Savior available to forgive you of your sin and give you righteous standing before God. The Holy Spirit did that work inside of you, of illuminating that truth to you, and drew you into faith, called you into faith. But you've also been called into mission with God. You see, because not only have you been drawn into faith, but once having come to faith, you're like Paul. You're called, set apart for the gospel to share that and proclaim that message to the ends of the earth. Oftentimes we see, whether it's Paul or some other figure in the Bible, and we think to ourselves that that person is some sort of like superhuman Christian that they've got access to something that's different or that their calling is different. But the reality is, the only thing that differentiates you as a follower of Jesus from Paul as a follower of Jesus, other than a couple thousand years, is the fact that he had a specific tag, apostle. A very small number of individuals were given that tag, that official designation as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, You as a follower of Jesus, me as a follower of Jesus, are the exact same as Paul as a follower of Jesus. He was loved by God, you're loved by God. He was called into faith, you've been called into faith. He was put on mission to share the gospel, you've been put on mission to share the gospel. He was had the Holy Spirit inside of him as a result of his faith, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you as a result of faith. Same thing. Paul's not some sort of super Christian. He's a Christian who longs to share the message of Christ with everyone on the earth. Same should be true for us. That should be shared understanding among the body of Christ. And then the last one that he gives is in verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Because we are so loved By God, because we've been called into faith in him, called as saints, called to herald the message of the gospel, we can submit ourselves into a position of being servants of his. Hear this correctly. This final identity marker here as servant or slave depends on the fact that God loves you. It depends on the fact that you've been called into relationship with him. Because of those two things, we render ourselves into a position of humility of being a doulos. That's the Greek word. The literal translation is the word slave. If you look down at your translation of Romans 1.1, it probably says servant. It might say bond servant. You might have one of few translations that actually does render that word slave. And there's, I think it's important to point out the translation thought process behind that. The vast majority of English translations render that word servant because of the cultural baggage in America that comes with the word slave. Rather than leaving it up to the reader, our English translations use the word servant because it makes the task of accurate reading a little bit easier. When we see the word slave, we think of 1700s, 1800s, chattel slavery that existed here in America. And that comes with a lot of negative connotations. 
human being owning human being, buying and selling another person as property, treating them as less than property. When Paul or other biblical authors use the word doulos, that's not the image they have in mind. They have in mind something more akin to like debt slavery, that there would be an individual who has a a debt or a payment due to someone that they cannot just provide the money for. So they give themselves to that person in servanthood, in slavery, to work off the debt, and then when the debt is gone, they're freed from that person. They had almost all the normal rights of a typical citizen at the time. In fact, about the only thing they couldn't do was run for political office of any sort. But they lived at home. They arrived at work as a slave or a servant. They worked for a specified period of time to eliminate their debt, and then they were freed. When Paul or other biblical authors use the word slave, that's predominantly the image that they have in mind. When we hear the word slave, we think of something vastly different. So oftentimes, most English translations use the word servant. It's to avoid confusion. Unfortunately, what happens is that that leaves us lacking a definitive piece of what it means to have placed faith in Jesus Christ and stepped into a relationship with him. The word servant doesn't do full justice to what Paul is trying to convey. The word slave appears about 120 times in the New Testament. 39 times alone, the word Lord appears in the book of Romans. That word is kurios, K-U-R-I-O-S, kurios. Paul wants those two words next to each other. Paul, slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul, slave, Jesus Christ, Lord. He wants them next to each other because you can't have one without the other. A slave has to have a master. To have stepped into faith in Christ Jesus not only means that you've acknowledged him as your savior, but also that you've made him your Lord, your master. And you can do that safely, securely, confidently because he loves you, because he has called you. It means that you can joyfully submit yourself to him as a servant. It's the love of God witnessed in the work of Christ, illuminated to our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that makes it possible for us to submit ourselves to him. But Jesus himself goes one step further and says, not only are you a slave, but in John 15, he says, you're a friend. Listen to these words, John 15, 14 to 16. No one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants, do loss, slaves anymore, because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I've made known to you everything I heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose or called you. Love, calling, servant, slave. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus. You understand the love. You've seen it evidenced in the work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. He's called you into faith, and therefore, it is safe and secure and a joyful act to make him master, Lord. 
It's a statement of our own humility and of his majesty. The foundation of our identity stands secure upon the foundation of the gospel. Paul says these should be the shared understandings of who we are, that we're loved, that we're called into faith, called to carry the message of Christ, and that we're slaves to our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And all of those are built on, they stand secure, firm foundation on the truths of the gospel, which Paul also lays out. Paul says that he's a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Foundation of the gospel number one is that it is eternally of God. The gospel is not something that God thought up on the spot a couple thousand years ago, just before Jesus was born, because he couldn't figure out how to deal with the problem of human sin. That's not how the gospel operates. It's always been God's plan to redeem humanity from sin through the work of his son. It's eternal in that way. Scripture makes that clear from beginning to end, that God planned the means by which he would save humanity. And just as Paul states in verse 2, the prophets and the scriptures from Genesis all the way to Revelation attest to that reality. The gospel is eternally of God. The second foundation is that its substance is in the Son. The gospel is all about the Son. Paul summarizes the life of Jesus in verses 3 and 4 by highlighting the beginning and the end. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David, according to the flesh, and was appointed to be the powerful son of God, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. He humbled himself and was born in the flesh. He was glorified and resurrected from the dead, defeating sin. There is the gospel, says Paul. The good news is that the Son of God humbled himself and became human, that he died and was glorified by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in resurrecting him from the dead. The gospel is all about the Son, the humble glorification of the Son of God. And then through him, the beginning of verse 5, we receive grace. That because of the eternal plan of God, for the Son to humble himself and to come to earth, to die and to be raised into glory at the resurrection and ascend into heaven, everyone who places their faith in him receives grace, forgiveness. Amen? That is the gospel. It's all about the Son. It produces something. The rest of verse 5. We've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Hang with me here for like 45 seconds. Most of Paul's letters were written to individual house churches in a particular city. Romans, it's pretty clear as you work your way through the text, was actually written to multiple house churches in the city of Rome. Some of those house churches were made up of Jewish Christians, individuals of Jewish heritage who had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Some of those churches are made up of Gentile Christians, non-Jewish people who've placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Some of them might have been mixed bodies. To a Jewish Christian, obedience to the law was very important. You obey the Old Testament law. That's what you were supposed to do. It was an indicator of who was and who was not one of God's chosen people. To a Gentile Christian, the faith was very important. That's how we've been brought in. It's all about faith. It's not about doing everything or you know, having some perfect moral slate. It's about faith. And so Paul underscores, it's about both. The obedience of faith. In the exact same way that Savior and Lord go together, so too do faith and obedience. You can't have one without the other. It just doesn't work. 
It would be like having a car and no engine or an engine and no car. You could have a car in your garage with no engine inside of it. You would get nowhere when you opened the garage unless it was powered by Fred's two feet, right? No engine, you can't go anywhere. Or you could have just an engine sitting inside your garage and you could walk out to your garage and throw open the door and turn on the engine and you'd just be watching the engine run, inhaling the fumes because there's no car to actually transport somewhere. It takes both. You have to have both. It's faith that produces obedience, but that same obedience requires faith. Douglas Moo is a commentator on the book of Romans. He says it this way. Obedience always involves faith, and faith always involves obedience. They should not be equated, compartmentalized, or made into separate stages of Christian appearance. Paul called men and women to a faith that is always inseparable from obedience. For the Savior in whom we believe is nothing less than our Lord and to an obedience that could never be divorced from faith. For we can obey Jesus as Lord only when we have given ourselves to him in faith. The obedience of faith is what the gospel demands. Obedience and faith. John Stott, another commentator, says it this way. The proper response to the gospel is faith, indeed faith alone. Yet a true and living faith in Jesus Christ both includes within itself an an, uh, element of submission and leads inevitably to a lifetime of obedience. Paul's going to spend the rest of his letter fleshing out all of that. What exactly does that mean? But he states it right here at the start as common shared understanding. As believers, we understand the obedience of faith, working together, both of those things. And then last, kind of the end of verse 5, says we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles. The gospel is to God's global glory. The message of the gospel is to his glory throughout all of the earth. We don't, as Christians, proclaim the gospel because it brings us glory. We proclaim it because it brings him glory. We proclaim it because the very message itself is the glory of God. We proclaim it because he's to be glorified among all the nations. And as people come to faith and faith produces obedience, it brings glory to God, not glory to the message bearer. The work of the servant, the work of the slave, brings glory to the name of the master. So much so that it's not even about the name of the servant. It's about the master. David Platt says this, The highest of all missionary motives is neither obedience to the Great Commission, as important as that is, nor love for sinners who are alienated and perishing, strong as that incentive is, but rather zeal, burning and passionate zeal for the glory of Jesus Christ. Paul says we have some shared understanding about how all of this began and what it means going forward. And the foundation of that understanding is the gospel, the eternally of God gospel, the all about the Son gospel. The produces faith and obedience in the lives of of followers, gospel. The to God's glory throughout the earth, gospel. Your identity as a love and called slave of God stands secure on top of those truths. Who you are is built not on what uh, you might do. It's built on what God has already done. And the eternal gospel of God is all about the Son. It produces faith and obedience to the glory of God throughout all the earth and is evidence that God has loved and called you. And because of that, you submit yourself as a servant, as a do loss, 
a slave. Those, Paul says, are the common understandings before he launches into the letter. In fact, you could think of all of Romans 1, 1 to 17 as Paul's introduction. He introduces himself and his listeners. He introduces exactly what the letter is going to be about. And then beginning in Romans 1, 18, he starts to build this long, logical laying out of the gospel, beginning with the sin of humanity all the way up through the justification that we find through the Son of God. It's the clearest and most logical, laid-out explanation of the gospel in all of Scripture. And over the course of this year, what we want to do is walk our way through that explanation for a specific reason. The aim of this year uh, here at Liberty Christian Fellowship is going to be to clarify an end goal. It's to establish some shared understanding here at Liberty Christian Fellowship. Who are we as a church, and what does that mean going forward? We're not changing who we are. In fact, our mission statement for 32 and a half years, almost 33 years, has been the same, and it's remaining the same. We're building devoted followers of Jesus Christ. You can see that on our website. You can see it in the bulletin. We have it. uh, It's been up here on the wall. That's not changing. In fact, I think we have pretty good shared understanding of that, that that's what this church is about. But there's one thing that we realized we've not ever really clarified for everybody. If that's what we're doing, what is a devoted follower? If we're building devoted followers of Jesus Christ, what does the end goal of that look like? We've had uh, kind of a, a number of little statements that we would say periodically. If the why we exist is to build devoted followers of Jesus Christ, the how that we do that is through these four statements that maybe you've heard us say before, through relevant worship, caring relationships, biblical teaching, and practical ministry. It was great. We had a really good why and a really good how, but not really any sort of statement about what. So if you know why you're existing and you know how you're doing it, what exactly are you trying to build? And So that's what we want to spend the year clarifying as a church. So what we've done is that we've put together five statements about what it means to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And we're going to walk through those over the course of the year. They're represented by these five little icons that you're going to start to see quite a bit. You've got a handout inside your bulletin that explains what those five things are. There are some statements under each one of those that come out of like a longer paragraph. But here's what we are defining devoted followers of Jesus Christ as. First and foremost, a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is gospel-centered. The defining characteristic of a follower of Jesus is belief in the truth of the gospel message, that Jesus Christ died as the atoning sacrifice for the sin of humanity and was raised to life in triumph over sin and death, so that all who believe in him are forgiven of their sin and made righteous before God. This truth is the center of all human history and should be central to all who place their faith in Jesus. To live a gospel-centered life means that the gospel forms the core of our understanding of who God is and how we engage in all of life's situations. If you're familiar with Instagram, you know that you take a photo, you upload that photo into this app, and then you're able to choose a filter that you want to put on that photo. In my world, there only needs to be one filter. It's called lo-fi. 
every picture looks best through lo-fi. Here's what happens for me. I take a photo, I put it into the Instagram app. I start clicking all of the filters. There are like 18 of them before lo-fi. I start clicking them all. And I'm like, yeah, it looks all right. It looks all right. It looks all right. It looks all right. I get to lo-fi and I think to myself, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful. Why would anybody ever choose a filter other than lo-fi? Why did Instagram even make any other ones? You use that one and the picture is stunningly gorgeous. To be a follower of Jesus is to say that the gospel is the only filter that brings clarity and beauty to everything that you interact with. Every situation that you face, every circumstance you find yourself in, every relationship that you deal with, all of the things that happen in the world and in society around us, as a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, you look at those things, and there are a bunch of worldview filters we could use to look at those, but the gospel is the only one that brings clarity. A devoted follower of Jesus Christ, by default, goes to the gospel as the lens by which they look at everything. It filters all of life for us. That's the core of what it means to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And then there are four more of these. The next is that a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is humbly unified. Having been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus are brought into the family of God known as the church. The worldwide body of believers is to be both diverse yet unified. And that diversity comes from being a global entity made up of people who are all made in God's image from different races, ethnicities, nationalities, and socioeconomic backgrounds. People with different talents, personalities, and gifts. Knitting this diverse group together is the overriding, unifying gift of salvation by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Though local churches may differ on minor issues within the lived-out expression of following Jesus, there is to be joyful unity over the large truths of the gospel message. That unity, lived out and expressed in humble, devoted love, service, and care to one another in the context of a local church, portrays a picture of the gospel to the world. A devoted follower of Jesus Christ strives to live in humble unity with the global body of Christ. Not just this local church, though we want to operate in unity as well, but with all believers. We're humbly unified. The next is that we are mission-driven. Having been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus are commanded to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And motivated by the grace of God shown to us in Jesus Christ, we humbly, obediently, and passionately long to share the message of grace for the rest of our lives. The proclamation of the gospel, boldly spoken in word and humbly modeled in deed to all the nations of the earth, is to be the driving motivation in the life of all followers of Jesus. If you've been saved by grace, you've come to an understanding of your own brokenness and sin and your need for a Savior, and you've seen that saving grace in the person and work of Jesus Christ, it should be what catapults you out of bed in the morning, that there are people that need to hear that message as well. A devoted follower of Jesus Christ is driven by the mission of going and making disciples of all nations and baptizing them into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that he's commanded. Mission driven. The next is pursuing holiness. Having been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus are to live lives marked by an increasing likeness to Christ. Growth in holiness, known as sanctification, is not the basis of our salvation, but rather an obedient and joyful response to our salvation. Sanctification is a lifelong process. It is the aim of every follower of Jesus to continually grow in likeness to Christ. That's why 
We make a big deal out of reading Scripture, knowing the Bible, spending time with the Lord in relationship with Him, being obedient to the commands of Christ, allowing the Holy Spirit to mold you into the image of Jesus. That's what a devoted follower does. That's what servant and Lord is all about. He's master. His truth is your truth. His truth is my truth. His ways are your ways. His ways are my ways. To be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is to pursue holiness. And then last, to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ is to make disciples. Having been saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, all followers of Jesus are to live out the command to make disciples of all nations. Devoted followers of Jesus make disciples through the context of intentional relationship, allowing the gospel to impact their own lives in such a way that faith in Jesus is multiplied in the lives of others around them. What that means and what that looks like depends on the relationship. You may enter into intentional discipleship relationships with someone who's further along the faith journey than you are. If you're a parent, you've entered into a discipleship relationship with your children by virtue of giving birth to children. If you are in a small group, that's discipleship happening in relationship with one another as you live it out shoulder to shoulder. As devoted followers of Jesus Christ, we seek to make disciples at LCF, We are building devoted followers of Jesus Christ who are gospel-centered, humbly unified, mission-driven, pursuing holiness, and disciple-making. What we're going to do over the course of the next 14 months uh, is walk through the book of Romans. And we're going to go verse by verse, start to end. And at four different points, we're going to do a little breakout series for three or four weeks. The book of Romans is going to provide for us the backdrop of what it means to be gospel-centered. We're going to see what that looks like, how to look through that lens, how to live that out in all areas of our lives. And then four different times, as it makes sense throughout the text, we'll do a little breakout kind of mini sermon series around those other four phrases. For instance, by the end of Romans 3, Paul has laid out very clearly that everyone is sinful and needs a savior, that there's no one righteous, not even one. And so at the end of chapter 3, once we get to there, we're going to stop and do three or four weeks dedicated to, if that's true and we believe that to be true, we look through the lens of the gospel and we see that all humanity is sinful, what does it mean to be mission-driven? To be driven by the mission of God to share the gospel with all of humanity because everybody's sinful. And then we'll do little breakouts like that as it makes sense within the text as we go throughout the next 14 months. We wanted to fit it into a year, um, but it just didn't really make sense. So rather than rush it, we decided we'll give it into the early part of 2019. So that is where we're headed. In terms of immediate application, what does that mean for the next week? I want to offer a few things. Worship team, you guys can can come on up. The first is that there is no devoted following of Jesus if you've not placed your faith in him initially. If you're here this morning and you've never made a decision, you've never had a moment where you recognized your sin and you recognized Jesus as Savior and you made him, your Lord, your Savior and Master, that's where you have to begin. In fact, any attempt to follow Jesus without first being saved by Jesus is actually an attempt to save yourself in your own actions and works, and that will never be sufficient. It will always come up short. It'll never work out. What you need is faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And if you've not done that, you've not taken that step, it's putting the cart before the horse to talk about devoted following. Faith first, following second. 
The next question is this. If you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, is he your Lord? If you've made Jesus Christ your Savior, it's important to ask that critical question. Is he my master? Because he cannot be one and not the other. A faith that has not made Christ your Lord is a faith that has not made Christ your Savior. And that might sound harsh, but it's true. A true faith requires that you understand his love for you. A love that humbled itself on your behalf, calls you into faith and into mission alongside him, exalts you to the level of his friend and makes it safe for you to humble yourself to the level of a slave. That's a great intellectual way to think about this, but the proof is actually in the pudding. Does God have ultimate say in your life? Is his truth your truth? Are his ways your ways? Is what he says to be true about humanity and the world around us true for you? Do you believe that? Is he your Lord? And then last, I want to give everybody kind of a handle to grab onto over the course of the next week. And it's this. Take that little fold out or that little handout in your bulletin. Maybe fold it up and put it inside your Bible. And over the course of the next week, Monday to Friday, take one of those statements a day, read it, read the verses that go with it, and then offer a simple prayer to the Lord. God, am I submitted to you in making the gospel central to my whole life? Am I submitted to you in being humbly unified with the church? Am I submitted to you in being mission-driven or pursuing holiness or making disciples? And God, if I'm not, would you illuminate the places where I need to grow? One of the things we want this year to be all about is clarifying the end goal. And we can make the end goal as clear as we want, but if we don't ever address the starting point, it will be impossible to move from one spot to the next. What's crucial in this whole endeavor is that everyone be honest about where am I now, what is my here, so that I can move toward there. And the reality is that we won't go from here to there until we're discontent with here and captivated by the beauty of there. And so we need to get on our knees in prayer and say, Lord, where am I? Those five things are not a spot where we can arrive at perfection and it's just done like you're 64 years old and you've reached the pinnacle of being gospel-centered and humble, unified and mission-driven and pursuing holiness and making disciples and your growth is done. They're what we move toward throughout all of our life. And we need to get on our knees and ask the Lord, where are my points of growth? Where are my points of a lack of submission? God, Holy Spirit, would you convict me of where my here is and captivate me with the beauty of where there is? And then would you empower me to walk in that direction? And if you would give five days to that, I think we'd all come back next Sunday with an understanding of exactly what it is that the Lord might want to do in us and through us in the coming year. And so spend the next five days praying over those things. And then let's gather back together, whether it's in your small group and you can start talking about it, or whether it's on Sunday mornings and we continue to see what Romans has to say about being a devoted follower of Jesus Christ. Sound good? We're going to close our time this morning in worship. So if you want to stand, I'm going to pray for us and then we'll sing.